gospel. Um, Tom and I both got up here and shared on that Sunday, and today's the last Sunday in the five-week series, so both of us are going to be getting up to, um, to preach this morning as we go through, and just kind of, we're landing the plane on advancing the gospel, so i um, looking forward to um, sharing together this morning, but before I um, open up God's word, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we just sang about how wonderful is our Savior's love for us, and what a, what a joy it is knowing that we're loved so much by you, that we are, we are called as children of God by God himself, and Lord, the, the wonderful privilege it is to be a child of God. May we never um, take that for granted and help us to cherish um, what comes with being a child of yours, Father. We thank you for that precious gift. And Lord, as we worship this morning, I pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. And Father, as we open up our Bibles this morning, I pray that you would pierce our hearts with your word and help us to, Lord, see you in a new way, see you in a fresh way. And may we become more like Christ through this time that we spend together. Father, we thank you for our church family that we have here, that we can gather and we can share with one another, encourage one another, that we can sing songs of worship that we can give of the things that you've given to us to further your kingdom. And Father, help us to be good stewards of those things. And Lord, as we're talking about advancing the gospel, may our hearts be in the right places as we seek to use the resources you've given us for your glory. But more importantly, Father, that we seek to really to seek and to save the lost and to come alongside of you, Father. May we um, follow you every step of the way, Lord, because you are the one that brings about salvation but you want to use us in that process. What a precious thing that is. And Lord, may we be faithful. And Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been very careful. I know I've been the one who have also said that as we go through this Advancing the Gospel Ministry Expansion Project, um, that when it comes to the commitment cards that we'll be collecting a little later in the service, that we will keep these very confidential, that we will never, I'll never see them, our other pastors will never see them, and here we are in week one, and I'm going to make one exception, and you'll understand why when I do. Um, a couple, just actually this earlier this week, Nancy Anderson, who's our financial secretary, called me into our office, and she said, Bob, I know you're not supposed to see these things, but she said, you have to see this one, and she said, and besides, I need your help reading it. And um, so and she said, trust me, when you see it, you'll know why I said this. It's going to be okay. So I said, all right, Nancy, I trust you. So I, I looked at it, and it was an intention card filled out by a five-year-old in our church. Now, I will say that out of all the intention cards that we can collect through this entire project, even if we get one that's a half a million dollar intention card, I think this one here is going to be my favorite. Uh, let me just share with you a little bit about what's on here. Um, I'm not going to give you his name, and I called up his mom, and I got permission to share this this morning. And um, what's really nice, he, on the, the cards have address and city, state, and zip on here with some blank lines. And in that section, he wrote in, yes, and he said, I will. Now, picture the, it's all capital letters, and the two L's in will are kind of laying on their back with the little feet sticking up in the air. They're sideways. It says, I will, and then it's G-I forgive, and then you, Y-U-O, and then money, M-U-N-E. <laughs> and he drew a little box and put a check in it. So um, 
Then in the um, amount column, he has a one and a backwards three, and then something we can't quite read. <laughs> and, um, but in this sealed envelope with this commitment card was 13 cents. Now, what he, um, what he did was he was downstairs in the family room, and you, I remember um, weeks ago we mailed out the letter from the church leadership, and then we had the newsletter, and we had the black envelopes, and then the intention cards. And he saw it laying in the family room. And he asked his mom, he said, what's this? And so she told him about advancing the gospel and the things that the church is going to do and how we're raising money. And he said, he took the card and he took the envelope and he said, I'll be right back. And he ran upstairs and went to his bedroom. And he went up and he filled the card out all by himself. And he collected all the money that he had, 13 cents, put it in the envelope, sealed it, and ran back downstairs and gave it to his mom and said, I want to do it too. You know, the things that we can learn through children, I mean, here he is, he took, I mean, that was, that 13 cents was all the 13 cents that he had. And, um, you know, we, we can't forget the children as we go through and do this project. And it's um, just exciting to see their hearts. Well, oh, you know what? I might need some help. Tom, I left the remote control in the back. Do you mind grabbing it? <laughs> this is... <laughs> At least he didn't have to bring my man purse up. <laughs> Little joke from a few weeks ago. But um, as we began talking about advancing the gospel, one of the things that we started with was I shared our mission statement. And I want to just be cautious about when I say a mission statement, because please remember, a mission statement is not something, it's not supernatural, it's not divine. It's, um, it's just God, it's just what we believe, this is what God is calling us as a church to carry out His mission here on the earth. And there are some really unhealthy churches with wonderful mission statements. And there are some churches that are doing incredible things with the Spirit of God alive in that church that don't have mission statements. So, um, but it, it is something, especially in American churches, we use it to say, we want to remember what it is that God's called us to, to carry out as a church, primarily as our role. Now, Amer in America, corporations have mission statements as well. Most of them have them. And I want to share one with you, and this is from the Coca-Cola company. There we go. Now, the mission statement says of Coke, a can of Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. That's the mission statement for Coca-Cola. Now, think about the size of Coca-Cola, the thousands and thousands of employees they have, the money they have, the, the machinery, the trucks, the facilities, all of that is being used for one mission, a can of Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. I'm trying to figure out which way is on, there we go. Now. Look at this, here we have a can of Coke. I believe that's Chinese. I'm not, I'm not gonna vouch for it, but it's some, you know, probably Far East language. Um, now, look at this. Here we have a truck, probably the Sahara Desert maybe, um, delivering Coke to the remotest parts of the world. Here's another one. Look at it, in the back of an elephant, cases of Coca-Cola being delivered into the hands of every person in the world. Here we have probably Southeast Asia, most likely that cart was being pulled, a wooden cart probably by an ox, 
And here we have Coke is mobilizing all of its resources, everything they can, for the mission statement of a can of Coke in the hands of every people on the planet. Now, as we think about our mission statement, can you imagine for our sake how much energy, how much we should invest, how much we should mobilize our resources for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the heart of every person on the planet. Think about corporate America. How many billions upon billions of dollars and countless man hours are being invested into mission statements that ultimately are just going to burn in the end. And God has given us a mission statement of taking the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. How much more passionate should we be about the mission that God has given to Bible Fellowship Church? Our mission statement says we're advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. See, for us, I am so thankful that our mission statement as a church really mirrors the Great Commission in Scripture. Because if you talk about, you know, is it a man-made mission or is this something from God, you could clearly look at the mission statement that we have as a church and say that our mission is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to advance the gospel by making disciples. What does the Great Commission tell us about making disciples? To go and make disciples for Jesus Christ. See, our mission parallels what God has want, wanted the church to do over the centuries. And... I want to encourage us as we're thinking about mobilizing our finances, our resources, and all that we have to this cause. It's a biblical cause that I think we can give our all to. And that's why as I think about what's ahead for this church, I am personally really excited about what God is doing in us, what God wants to do through us, and what the coming years are going to look like. Last week, Alex Mondes was here preaching. He's, if you weren't here, he's from the Evangelical Free Church on a national level. Um, he's in charge of their Hispanic ministries and very involved in church planting. And he shared with us about church planting. And what I want to just make sure that we do is that we don't create our own little checkbox to say Bible Fellowship planted a church a number of years down the road. Because in reality, who cares if Bible Fellowship planted a church? But if Bible Fellowship plants a church as a means of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and seeing disciples made in a community where there was no church, that's a goal that we can get excited about. And we just happen to believe that planting and starting a Bible teaching church is one of the most effective means of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Alex uh, titled his sermon last week, Seeing Like Jesus Sees. And as we become disciples of Jesus Christ, who increasingly see as Jesus sees, what we're going to start to see is some of the things that Jesus in his earthly ministry saw. Jesus saw that the harvest was plentiful. As Jesus looked around and he saw the countless numbers of people, what Jesus saw was that there was an incredible harvest. And then as Jesus looked at those people through his own eyes, his compassion grew. And as we start to see like Jesus sees, our compassion for people who are spiritually lost will start to grow. I want to use um, Jesus. He's a great example for us. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And I want to take a look at Jesus' earthly ministry and take a look, and we're going to learn some things from how Jesus went about advancing the gospel message. 
If you don't have a Bible this morning, just put your hands up. Our ushers will pass them out, and um, they'll be glad to get one to you. But we're going to be reading Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. First thing I want you to see as you look at what Jesus did here, was Jesus went about in his earthly ministry meeting spiritual needs, but at the same time meeting physical needs of people. And I think we can learn a lot from what Jesus did because if you look at the American church, we kind of, um, in the last 100 years, have kind of taken some pendulum swings when it comes to meeting spiritual needs and meeting physical needs. Go back to the early 20th century, especially around the 1920s into the 1930s. What started happening there was liberalism just crept into the American church and into our seminaries. Some really solid evangelical, just great biblical seminaries went liberal in the 20s and 30s. Denominations, ones that were just in history past, were just strong with proclaiming the word of God. Churches went liberal through that period of the 20s and 30s. And if you hear the term fundamentalist, you know, today it's kind of thrown around. It almost has like a negative baggage to it. Those fundamentalists, they think of like Bible-pounding, insensitive people. But the term fundamentalism was a good term because what it did was there was a, the, the evangelical churches were responding to liberalism, and they just said, these are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Things that we would believe in and hold, hold to, the deity of Jesus Christ, the authority of Scripture. And they developed the fundamentals. And the churches that held to those fundamentals of the faith started being referred to as fundamentalists. But you see, what started to happen, though, was because of what the liberal churches did, the liberal churches and the seminaries, they stopped proclaiming the gospel and they stopped believing in the authority of God's word. And they just started going out and doing social justice, helping the poor, feeding the hungry. And what, in a reaction to that, what happened was a lot of the evangelical churches said, well, that social stuff is for the liberal churches. We're proclaiming the gospel and teaching the word of God. So the Bible and doctrine and theology was protected, and that became the mark of the fundamental evangelical churches. And so when it came to feeding the hungry or taking care of the sick, the evangelical churches kind of said, no, we're not going to do that because we might be labeled as a liberal. And Sadly, that went on for quite a while. But what I want to encourage is, if, especially in the younger generation, I find today the younger generation just gets very impatient, I think, with the, pre, with the church of the past, saying, well, look, at they gave up on, on, just on meeting the needs of people and feeding the poor and, and helping. And, but they need to, I want to encourage the younger people to realize what it was that those generations were reacting to. And they were protecting sound biblical doctrine and theology because it was really being thrown out the window. And there were reasons that the church evolved that way. But in the last probably 20 years, the one beautiful healthy swing has been there's become this recognition that, wait a minute, if we're going to proclaim the gospel and we're going to teach scripture, we also need to meet the needs of people. 
And that's been a really good thing. But what happened was, picture as a pendulum, you have what happened in like the 30s, 40s, churches kind of stopped meeting those physical needs. And then all of a sudden, about 20 years ago, we, it's, this pendulum started to swing. It would have been wonderful if it stopped right here, where you had a great balance of sound Bible teaching and theology and the Word of God. But what happened was the pendulum started to swing over here again. And instead of holding to sound doctrine, Meeting the needs of people became the priority, and proclaiming the gospel kind of went out the window. And I really want to encourage us at church, as we look at the model of Jesus Christ, Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel message, and he met the needs of people. He saw where they were hurting and struggling. And it goes on in the passage we just read, and it talked, it says he was, you know, he he was feeding, not feeding, but he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. See, Jesus Christ met the needs of people. Now, I want to just, there's four things we can learn from the passage I just read that I really believe as we talk, talk about stepping out in faith and advancing the gospel that we can learn from in this passage. The first of the four is this. See the spiritual need all around you. See, as Jesus ministered, what did it say in verse 35? Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel. You see, Jesus was engaged in the lives of spiritually lost people. And for us, as believers in Jesus Christ, if you want to advance the gospel, you need to be involved in the lives of spiritually lost people. It's so easy for us to develop this kind of fortress mentality that we come to the church three, four, five times a week. Uh, maybe you even work in a secular environment, but you maybe just go throughout your week just doing your job, and the people that you work with, they think of you as a great guy, but they don't know the reason you're a great guy is because you are in love and you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, we need to be engaged in the lives of the spiritually lost. Picture when you drive home today, as you go through those neighborhoods, how many of them were out worshiping God at church this morning? Not many. You see, there are spiritual needs all around us. And in Jesus' ministry, when Jesus, he got out all of the time into the towns and the villages and the streets, and he recognized that these people needed the gospel more than anything else. So for us, if we want to be effective, we need to recognize the spiritual needs that are all around us and be engaged in the lives of people with the, for the good news of Jesus Christ. Second thing we can learn from this passage is that we need to grow a heart of compassion. See, Jesus was very compassionate. It talks about, and it says in here, verse 36, seeing the people, he's seeing them through his eyes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. See, one of the things for us, isn't it true sometimes that the more you get to know people, the less you like them? And then why is that? You know what? One of the reasons is because their lives are messy. And Jesus Christ went out and he saw the needs. And what did he do? He was healing the sick. He was out ministering to their needs. Their needs didn't turn him off. So I think so many times for us, we almost take them into the mindset of like, man, I can't even handle my own needs, let alone get involved in someone else's life. But you see, Jesus Christ did. 
He saw their physical needs, he saw their spiritual needs, and he invested into the lives of those people. We're talking about reaching Trenton with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to um, avoid something over the course of the next years as we do this, and I'm going to call it throwing gospel bombs. Now, what do I mean by that? Picture, here we are at Bible Fellowship Church. We can be like this castle, like this fortress mentality, right? And we could do like just two ways of doing gospel ministry that are not really good ways. One is, remember those old like kind of catapults that they used to have in the castles? And they pull the thing back and shoom, they throw it up and out goes whatever, like whatever it was they were throwing out. And we can like be in our fortress and, you know, collect Christmas presents at Christmas time. Um, we could, oh, yeah, we're going to do a, we're going to collect blankets and distribute them. We're going to, you know, we're going to go down and twice a year serve at a soup kitchen in, in Trenton. And yet that's the only time that we step out of our church. It's like, well, yeah, I can write a check. There goes the gospel bomb. But there's no relationship connected to it. You see, what Jesus did was he himself went out and he met those needs. And it's so easy for us because it's safe and it's secure back here. You can go out and serve in a soup kitchen for three or four hours, just, yeah, hi, 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 and not know anything about the lives of the people that you're serving. I think one, um, one great model in our church has been what Sharon Rosenthal's been doing down in Kensington over the last number of years. Um, and she's so humble about it. But, you know, Sharon has start, had, a, for years now, has been doing a Wednesday morning women's Bible study down in Kensington. And she knows those women. She loves those women. They love her. She built relationships week after week after week. That's just one example. You know, maybe for us in Trenton, we're going to start offer, have opportunities to go and teaching English as a second language. And maybe you do a weekly commitment. And now you're starting to get to know some people and you're building relationships. You know their struggles. You know their family. You see, that is what it means to really invest into the lives of people. Uh, maybe it's tutoring the kids down, out in the, you know, there that just could use help with schoolwork, and you commit to doing it, and you're building a relationship. I remember when I would go over to Africa, one of the things they told me was that when short-term missions trips come, they love to see people come back again and again. And their comment was, we realized that we then have brothers and sisters in Christ over in America who are willing to come back and love us and build a relationship with us. And we need to have that mindset that it's our time to just go out and to, to build relationships and invest into the lives of people. The third thing that we can do is what I would call, when we look at Jesus, is to develop the expectancy of Christ. Verse 37, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Two things related to expectancy. One, Jesus understood the power of the gospel. He recognized that what these people needed was him. They needed a savior. And he believed in the power of the gospel to transform and change lives. So Jesus was able to proclaim with boldness the good news of the kingdom of God. And we need to be able to believe that as well. And the second thing what Jesus looked at was he saw opportunity where most of us see challenges. He looked out and the harvest was plentiful. You know, how many excuses can we come up with that's going to keep us as individuals 
from serving in a place like Trenton or doing something in your work. You know, we can think of all of these reasons. Well, I, I, might, I, you know, I might get in trouble because, well, there's that separation of church and you know, the company might not like it. And so we, instead of trying to come up with a creative way to do something, we tend to do nothing. Or if we go into an urban environment, oh, man, I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs. What do I know about the city? And how effective am I going to be over there? And you know what? People just want to know you care. They want to know you love them. And yet we think of all these reasons why we shouldn't do it. See, Jesus had a heart of expectancy. One of the things, maybe in your work, um, maybe you get sent overseas and you travel through your business. Well, do you go over there, just get your work done, go back to the hotel room at night and just go start the next day? Think of it this way. Your company, corporate America, secular business, they're sending you as a missionary and they're paying for it. Because you can look and find out, well, where are the churches in the area that I'm going to? What can I do while I'm over there? Business stops at maybe 7 o'clock. Maybe I can go out for a couple hours and meet some Christians and encourage them. Ask them, how can I help while I'm here for a week or whatever it is. You see, we spend so much money sending short-term missionaries overseas that when our own people go over overseas, you don't think of yourself as a missionary. But that's what you are. Number one in your life, you represent Jesus Christ. So let's have a spirit of expectancy. And the fourth thing that we can learn is to pray with the urgency, with urgency for the Lord's harvest. What did Jesus do in verse 38? He saw that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers are few. He tells his disciples, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus saw his, the need. And what did he tell his disciples to do? Pray. See, if we're going to go out and we're going to make a difference for the kingdom of God, what's the first thing that we need to do? Pray. We need to be praying for the ministry that we carry out as a church. We need to be praying for the people around us, the spiritually lost around us. If we're a growing disciple, we're going to have a heart of prayer. And that's, as a church, our greatest resource as a church is the Spirit of God. I remember saying this about a year ago in a sermon how long would it take Yardley to recognize that the Spirit of God left us if he ever just packed up? He won't, but if he ever just packed up and left. You see, are we reaching out to people in love and reflecting Christ and in prayer so that if the Spirit of God ever left this church, it would become obvious to Yardley that something changed at Bible Fellowship Church? See, next, next to, the, I would say, the Spirit of God, Probably the greatest resource we have next to that would be all of you. The people. You're, you're, you're child of the king. And collectively, look at what we represent. And we talk about spiritual gifts. God has gifted every single person in this room differently. When we combine them all together, what an amazing resource that is. Think back to Coca-Cola. All the money, the resources, the energy, the people, the time. Well, look at what we have. We have the Spirit of God, and we have you and all of your gifts. That is enough to make an incredible difference on this world for Jesus Christ. Was, um, I need to um, wrap up here, but in the last couple of weeks, we started something at the church, is that we've been looking at um, our, out, our outreach ministry here. We, call, we have a world reach team that oversees our outreach, and we formed a discovery team right now that's exploring 
what it means to make a difference around the world for Jesus Christ. The World Reach team is part of it, but a bunch of other people joined. We had our first meeting about three weeks ago, which I led, and we're going to bring a consultant in to do the additional meetings. But I showed two slides that I want to wrap up with in that meeting. And one of them, I said to the group, I said, what does a missional, healthy church look like? Take a look at this definition. A missions healthy church. The church is intentional in the application of numerous resources. People, gifts, skills, connections, finances, opportunities, etc. To do all it can for what? To fulfill the Great Commission. So we see here is we're intentional as a church in the application of all of the resources that God has given us to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what a missionally healthy church looks like. Now, one of the things I asked him as well, I said, well, if the World Reach team, going forward, what should be the purpose of the World Reach team here at the church? And people might say things like, well, it's to financially support our missionaries or to care for our missionaries when they come home on furlough and meet their needs. But the problem with that is that's a model that's saying, well, we've got these missionaries who are the ones going and making disciples, and our job is more behind the scenes to just support them. I want to challenge our thinking. Our job is every single one of us to go and make disciples alongside of our missionaries. Take a look at this as a potential purpose for the World Reach team. To see our church family, everyone here, so passionate about God's heart for the world that they are actively, by the way, this is our discipleship process, these next three statements, loving God, loving others, and living their faith by bringing people locally, nationally, and worldwide to accept, love, and serve Jesus Christ. Our missions leadership team, our world reach team, are not the ones that we can delegate the cause of missions to. What we want that group to do is, yeah, to be the administrators of making sure things are done well. Their primary job is to mobilize all of us for the cause of reaching this community, our region, and our world for Jesus Christ. It's a big task. But I want to encourage, as we step out in faith right now, and we're talking about this ministry expansion project, remember the number one thing is not the building, it's not the finances, but it's carrying out the mission that God has called us to, and those other things are important, but they're just the means of helping us get there. I'm going to call Pastor Tom up, and he's going to talk to us a little bit more about what it means to be a generous disciple as we wrap up this series. Thanks, Bob. I've really enjoyed Bob and I working together on this, and I really appreciate his gifts and his leadership and watching how God's brought together the elders and the church as we finish up really the beginning of this project. So the last five weeks, we've gone through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we've talked a lot about our resources and living our lives for Christ. Bob and I get together every Tuesday morning to, to share and talk and pray. And um, last week we said, you know, what's God put on your heart? And he shared what he just shared. That's what God put on his heart. And I said, you know, God put something different on my heart, but it's related. And so we decided in this closing, as we really kick off the beginning of the expansion, that we would both share what God put into our heart. And so 
For me, I'd like you to turn now back to the Old Testament, to the book of Haggai. Just go backwards from the Gospel of Matthew. And Haggai's a little tiny prophet there, just two chapters. And as we think about what Bob just shared, about our mission, what I want to talk about is the fact that it's very easy to get misplaced in our priorities. Misplaced in our priorities. What, what's this noise? It's that strip on the side of the road when you're on the turnpike if you start to veer off. I hate that sound. Right? But I like it because it keeps me in the lane. Right? And that's what my wife says, you're a terrible driver. Right? But in the same way, as a Christian, it's extremely easy to misplace our priorities. Far more than just our giving, but your giving, what you do with your money, has a lot to do with your priorities. But over the next two years, we're hoping to do a number of things in this project, which includes expanding this building because we're out of room. But as Bob was sharing, far more than that, to begin to set our sights on a church plan in Trenton, as well as to continue to see people. It's exciting. We're seeing people just about every week getting saved, growing in the Lord, people's lives being healed and helped in so many difficult situations. But this morning, we're going to look at the book of Haggai because I saw a parallel here, and the Lord was just speaking to me to say, wow, this is exactly what we as a church need to hear. Because the, the, the Old Testament saints at this particular time were going through a really interesting time. They had just come back into the land. Remember that in the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament ends with, with the people of God being expelled from Jerusalem. They were booted out. For 70 years, they were in exile. And God's temple had been torn down and burned up by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So when the Jews came back into the land, about 50,000 Jews moved back into Jerusalem and the promised land, and the temple was torn down. And anybody who knew the Old Testament had a heart for God knew that the temple was important to God. In the Old Testament, the temple was where God's presence dwelt. That's where the nations came and they prayed and they sought the Lord's face. And so the temple was a great priority to God because it was the place where people would meet him. And so when they got back into the land, they built the walls around the city, and then they had an advancing the gospel expansion project. We're going to rebuild the temple. And so everybody got all excited, and they started. They laid the foundation, and as time went on, about two years into it, they started being persecuted, and you could read about this in the book of Ezra. They started being persecuted by the surrounding nation. They didn't like the idea that they were building a temple to Jehovah. And as a result of that persecution, they decided, you know what? Maybe it's just not time to work on God's temple. So they had laid the foundation. They had started it. They had made their intentions clear, and then they just stopped, right? Now, this is insane. For 16 years, the foundation of the temple, right in the middle of Jerusalem, just lay abandoned. You know, they had all their construction signs under construction. And every day, people would walk by that and see it. And they would say, well, it's just not time. It's not time for us to do that. Meanwhile, they were building their houses. Home Depot was thriving they were coming out with carts full of drywall and building their houses. And so the Lord raises up the Haggai, the prophet, and, and, and the Lord comes to his people and he says, listen, we need to talk about your priorities. And this is so fitting because living in America, it's really difficult to maintain a focused 
zealous, passionate relationship with Christ. Because there's so many other things that distract us. They're not all bad things. We're not all out stealing and shooting heroin. Jesus said sometimes the cares of this world and the desires for other things enter in and the word becomes unfruitful. So as we continue with this project, today we're going to pass in our envelopes and, and state our intentions. But this is far bigger than just going, okay, now that's done. It's a lifestyle that says, is Jesus, is the Lord Jesus the center of my life? So let's look at what Haggai had to say. It's really interesting. This little message, he preached over a period of four months, he gave five messages, and there was a powerful change in the lives of the people. So start with me in verse one. It says, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt, right? So, so God goes, I know what you people are thinking. I'm looking down on you. I know what's going on. You're walking by my temple and it's sitting in ruins and you're not doing anything about it because it's not time, right? Now, what, what brought them to their misplaced conclusion that it's not time? Well, there were some obstacles. And you know, there's all kinds of good sound excuses and excuses that sound good. But at the end of the day, God goes, I know what you're saying. It's not time to rebuild the temple. So he says, can we talk about that? Verse three, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? God's gone. So help me here. It's not time to work on my priorities, but you got time to work on your priorities. You can buy panel for your cedar panels in your house, but God says, it's not time for you to work on my house. So, so it, was, it was a call to do some soul searching. Look at verse five. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Literally in Hebrew, it says, set your heart on your ways. Stop and think about what your priorities are. Nobody wants to do that. Keep the music going, keep the game going, keep busy. I don't have time to stop. And God's going, stop and think about your life right now. And this is as relevant to you and me as it was to them. What's really important to you? Where are you spending the majority of your time, your money? What are you, what are you living for? What do you think about when you, when you lay awake and you dream and you look forward to what's coming next? What is it? And God's gone, consider your ways. Take to heart. Just do some spiritual inventory as to to what's going on, what's important to you. Now, these people were saying, God, this is not a good time economically. We can't afford to give. And we, I got to work overtime just to make ends meet. I don't have time to be pouring into your work. We'll get to that one day. And God's gone, maybe, maybe you need to rethink that. Maybe the reason why you're not being able to make ends meet is because you're not putting me first. See, it's ironic that this never dawned on them. So look at verse six. God says, you have sown much, but you harvest little. Man, the crops are just not growing this year. You eat, but there's, there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, 
It's not enough to become drunk. You put on your clothing, but no one's warm enough. And we can all relate to this one. And he who earns wages puts it into a purse with holes. Pastor, it seems like it goes in one pocket, it's out the other, you know, by the time I can't, can't seem to make ends meet, can't pay the bills. And God's going, yeah, well, think, through, think this through. Is it possible because you're living for yourself? Right? This is very powerful, very practical. Like, hmm. Well, God, we, we can't be focusing on you right now. Look, we can hardly make ends meet. And he's going, yeah, I know. And I'm doing that on purpose. I'm withholding my blessing from you to get your attention, to change your priorities. Verse 7. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. So he says it again. Consider your way. That's twice. Stop and think. So then he gives them some very practical advice. This is what I love about the Bible. The Bible says all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction, reproof and training in righteousness. God doesn't go, live for me. He, he, he says, here's how I want you to do this. So look at the very specific stuff that he tells them to do. They're, they're not going, well, gee, what do you want us to do? He says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Verse 8. Go up to the mountains. Three commandments. Number one, go up to the mountains. Number two, bring wood. And number three, rebuild the temple. Now, that's not that, it's not that rocket science-like, right? Oh, I don't know what you want me to do. He goes, yeah, it's pretty easy. Go up to that mountain, cut down wood, bring it down, start rebuilding the temple. Right? Now, please, don't bring an axe next week and start cutting down trees because obviously there's an application here, but it's not for us, go cut down trees and start, hey, we could build this building ourselves, all right? But, but it is interesting that God's giving them very specific priorities. Now, anytime God speaks to your heart, anything short of obeying God, we're deceiving ourselves. You go, oh, they probably, hey, God, you really got through to me, man. Cut me to the heart. Doesn't matter. If you don't do anything about it, the Bible says we deceive ourselves. We just hear the word. So, God says, look, think about this. Here's why I want you to do this, verse 8. That I may be pleased and be glorified, says the Lord. See, this is what's so cool about Jesus. The cross is such a wonderful story that God wants everybody to hear about it. The advancing of the gospel is simply to advance the name of Jesus. The Bible says one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We want this whole world to come to know Jesus. We want people to be praising God. Last week, I went up to New York City. We went up to see the, the play Wicked. And I had read in the Psalms that morning, let the peoples praise you, Lord. Let all the peoples praise you. And I'm up in New York City, and I, I can hardly find any American. You know, I mean, there's people speaking every language you can imagine. I'm walking through all these teeming throngs, and, and I'm thinking, let the peoples praise you, Lord. Let all the peoples praise you. See, this is why we're here on this planet to advance the name of Jesus for the glory of God. And you don't have to wonder, what does God want me to do? Does he want me to cut down trees? He wants you to be involved in your local church. That's number one, your relationship with Jesus Christ in your local church. There's lots of other ministries going on out there that are wonderful, but the local church is where Jesus Christ's heart is. He said, I will build my church. It's people, right? In Ephesians chapter 3, it says, God is able to do beyond all we ask or think. To him be the glory in the church. We're not talking about a building, but all over this planet, it's individual groups of people 
gathered together under leadership, elders like the Bible teaches, and giving and serving and praying and witnessing and helping each other, God says, this is what pleases me. This is what brings me glory, right? And so it starts with my personal relationship with Christ. Every one of you who doesn't have a personal relationship with Christ, you're missing out on his blessing. But those of you who are believers, if you're not meeting with God every day to pray, to worship, to read your Bible, to let the Lord control you, to present yourself to him, you're not living to his glory. And I need to hear this too. But as you hear this, God's going, listen, I want to be pleased and glorified through the church. This isn't so we can go, look what we did. It's a, look at him, lift him up. Jesus is glorious. People are getting saved here, there, everywhere. Right? And so God says, so the reason why things aren't working well in your life, because you've misplaced your priorities. Look at verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Well, it's because of my house, which lies desolate. Well, each of you runs to his own house. Man, that's convicting. People say, oh, Pastor, I can't afford to give. Looks to me like you say you can't afford not to. He goes, you got plenty of time. You run. I see you with your panels. You're running to your house. <laughs> well, my house. Oh, you know, Pastor, we... It's just not time. You know, the kids, we, we got we, the job, you know, we got all these other projects going on. And God's going, yeah, I see what's happening. And this is why it ain't working. Right? Now, God's not promising here, if you put him first, you're going to be a rich man. Right? This isn't prosperity theology. But I believe this. The Bible says if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. And sometimes the reason God's blessing isn't on our lives it's because he's not first in our lives. God goes, verse 10, Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, grain, new wine, oil, and on what the ground produces, on men, cattle, and all the labor of your hands. God says, I have withdrawn my blessing from you as a people because You've lost your way. You've misplaced your priorities. Now, you go, that's probably why my car's not working. No, it's way bigger than that, right? Do you, do you want God's presence and blessing? Do you want his power in your life? Do you want his hand on your family, right? This is very individual first, but also corporate. Then it starts with saying, Lord, I need to find my way to make Christ first in my life, and I can't do that. See, if we stop right now and say, no, do that, right? We, could, we couldn't do this in the flesh. The Holy Spirit has to stir us up. Now, many times when the prophets gave a message like this, they just got beat up. Like Jeremiah, he preached stuff like this, they beat him up and throw him in a well. Many of the Old Testament prophets, they killed them. They said, shut up, killed them. But Haggai preached, and God moved, and that's so cool. God's word changes people. It changes us as Christians. It awakens people. And this is what happened. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. 
God wants you and me to obey Jesus. Right? Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And he'll give you the strength to obey him. We can do all things through Christ. He'll give you the desire to obey him. The Bible says God works in us to will and work. But sometimes he calls us to say, hey, what's most important in your life? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your recreation? Or is it me? So they, they began to obey as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people. Now, notice what God says. I am with you. Now, there's two ways that, that that's true. If you're a Christian, Jesus is always with you. The Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. But even though he's with you, there's another way of which he's with you. And that's what you want. That's what I want. Yeah, he's always with me, but if I'm at odds with him and doing my own thing, I'm not sensing his presence. I'm not feeling his power. God's not working through me and bearing fruit. I'm not connected with Christ. So theoretically and, and theologically, yeah, he's with you. But practically, God goes, now I'm with you. Does that make sense? So, so even when we pray for that, when we say, Lord, be with me today, well, what do you mean, be with me? Well, you know what you mean. You know he's with you, but you want to be lined up with him. You want to be allowing the Holy Spirit control. You want to sense that God has his hand on your life. And that's what we want for this church. And that's why we've been, as Bob was just saying, we've got to prioritize prayer, right? And, and God knows many of you can go home and have your dinner and forget all about this, but some of you are going to go home and get on your knees and say, God, that's what I want. I want you to be with me and my family. I want to surrender and see your power at work in my life. Such a cool thing. So Haggai closes this, this section as he writes this, and he goes, so let me summarize what just happened here. And by the way, it only took them three weeks. We had to have five weeks. In three weeks, they got the Advancing the Temple Project started. Look at verse 14. So he says, so, in other words, in summary, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts on the 24th day of the sixth month. Now, the first verse says it was on the first day of the sixth month, three weeks. And God stirred them up and they came and they worked, and God said to him, I'm with you. And as we begin this advancing the gospel project, this is what I believe God's saying, okay? All right, so we turn in our card, right? But God's gone, consider your ways. This is a, this is a church-wide involvement where each of us is seeking him, surrendering to him. So I wanna close with a couple thoughts. Number one, I know for me, there's times that I, I've read this chapter and, and God just, bam. So ask yourself this, have you misplaced your priorities? Talk about practical. One time a lady came to me, she said, you know what, Pastor, a couple years ago I was involved at a church and they needed a new kitchen. And I'm an interior decorator and I had some extra money and I had pledged to make a new kitchen for the church, to put in a new kitchen. She says, I don't even know what happened. 
But here it is a year later, and she says, I built a new kitchen on my house. But I never built a kitchen for the church. She's like, I think God's speaking to me. I go, you think? Right? So have you misplaced your priorities? Like prayer. Oh, I don't have time to be with God. Oh, oh, really? The time has not come for me to spend time daily with the Lord? Consider your ways then. Okay? How do I know if I misplaced my priorities? What are you doing with your money? Just look at your credit card statement. And look at your checkbook. Got time for your stuff? Right? Are you involved at all at the church? You go, well, well, I come Sunday morning. Woohoo! You're giving God an hour and a half. That only leaves 166 left for you every week. So it's not checking off a box, but is, are you involved? Are you working for God? Are you saying, hey, according to what Pastor Bob said, I have gifts. What am I doing at the church? So at the end, we don't go, we did it. And you go, we? We all. God's speaking and saying, all right, I want you to give your life for me. Live it for me. So, secondly, have you found yourself making excuses for procrastination? You know, one of these days, Pastor, I see what you're saying, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to start doing that. You better believe it. You can count on that. I'm going to do that one of these days. Well, how about today? What did the people say? The time has not come, right? The time has come. So if you've been procrastinating, you know, whatever it is, you're afraid of what people will think, or you don't want to repent of something, you're like, but I like doing this. The time has come, folks. My brothers and sisters, the time has come for revival and for sincerely seeking Christ. The Bible says he's a rewarder of all those who diligently seek him. I find a lot of young people this way. Yeah, one of these days, I'm going to really get on fire for God when I get older. Well, why wait till you get older? Well, you know, I want to have my fun. You know, that's, that's bull. It's not fun. It's sin. And you're going to look back and say, yeah, there might have been some pleasure in it, but you're going to eat the gravel of wasted years and baggage from not living for him. But then we're like, oh, once I get this new job, or one, you know, I'm going I'm to start being a spiritual leader in my family, but, but not right now. The time hasn't come. So if God's speaking to you about your procrastination, just go for it. Third, you're like, I do feel like something's missing in my life. Maybe it's that presence of the Lord that you used to have. See, God had withdrawn his blessing in his presence, but when they repented, then he said, I'm with you. And maybe it's, and that's usually where it starts, right here in my heart. It's my relationship with Christ. Don't go, well, I wrote a nice check for Jesus. Well, he doesn't need a check. He wants you. He wants your heart. And so, if you long for his presence, the Bible says this, James chapter 4, Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. He's eager to draw near and bless his children, to fill you again with the Holy Spirit. You'll never get a note in the mail. Please make a note. God's address has changed. You're like, I can't find God. He's always at the throne of grace, waiting. You go right through the doorway of the cross. He's always in the same place. But the Bible says, draw near to God. So if you've lost your way, and it doesn't mean, are you out shooting heroin? You could just have lost your way. 
just the busyness of life, raising the kids, or working, or whatever. But God's going, do you want my presence and blessing on your life? And, and, and make it a little bigger on this church, right? And maybe God's saying, hey, maybe that's why things aren't falling in place. Because I'm not in my right place. So as we close, the thing that really stood out to me is that God's saying through this passage, he's not asking us to go cut down trees and build this building, but he is asking you to do this, to prioritize Jesus and the church. If you prioritize Jesus and the church, seems to me that this passage is saying this, that's going to bring God's blessing on your life. It's going to bring you peace and joy. It's going to bring answers to prayer. It's going to bring you confidence. It's going to bring you fruit. Some of you are saying, boy, I want my kids to live for Jesus. And you follow the root back and you go, well, are you exemplifying that? Because they're going to do what we do, right? We can't send them, Jeremy, fix my teenagers. It's got to be us. So this is a great passage. I'm really excited. So what we're going to do is Brian and the worship team are going to come. We're going to sing a song as, as, we, as we present our, our pledges, our intentions to the Lord. But it's way bigger than this. We're going to stand together after and we're going to, we're going to rekindle our commitment to say, Lord Jesus, it's about you and about advancing the gospel. And then, as Bob said, we're so excited about what God's doing. We're really looking forward and thanking God for you. And pray for all of us to be wholeheartedly in this game. The ushers are going to come now and we'll be receiving our cards. sun cannot compare to the glory of your love there is no shadow in your presence no mortal man would dare to stand before your throne before the holy one of It's only by your blood, it's only through your mercy, Lord, I come. I bring an offering of worship to my King. No one on earth deserves the praises that I sing. Jesus, may you honor that you're due. Oh Lord, I bring an offering to you. I bring an offering to you. The sun cannot compare to the glory of your love. There is no shadow in your presence. No mortal man would dare to stand before your throne, before the whole.
with me the Apostle Paul said we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus as the Lord Amen. as though Jesus Christ himself and I believe this is speaking to you and to me through me he's asking you today will you surrender to me will you make me your priority if you're not a Christian this morning you come and repentance and faith, you believe, you give your life to Christ, say, Lord Jesus, today, I want to become a Christian, forgive me, I accept you, but if you are a Christian, you say, Lord, I've, I've lost my way, but I'm, I'm back, and those of you that are on the right path, keep it up, this is what pleases God, I want to pray for us all today, Father, as we close, the same Lord Jesus that said to the people in Haggai's day, I am with you, oh Lord, I pray that all of us We'll lay aside our fears, our sins, our excuses, and that we'll yield ourselves afresh to you. Oh Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit now upon your people. Take the offering of the, of the intention cards, but far more than that, take us, Lord. We are so excited about how you're blessing and what you're doing. And for those this morning who have lost their way, welcome them back, oh Lord. Grant them an extension of your mercy. Lord, this is not something that the flesh can accomplish. May you stir up our hearts, change our marriages, change our parenting, change our priorities. And may we see in the days to come continued evidence that you are pleased and being glorified in our midst. Thank you, Lord. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.
conscious of God.